three things while the servers are taking up the offering, um, some uh, things that you need to be aware of. Um, October is upon us and so fall is here and so we have a special time that we gather together as the family here at Sunnybrook and uh, uh, we call it Fall Festival. It's an opportunity for us to not only get together and to spoil our children with candy and games, but it is also a great opportunity for us to invite those who live around us uh, to join us in a lot of that. And so we, I promise you, we're very aware that inviting people over and giving them candy and games uh, doesn't lead anyone to Christ. But the part that I love about it is how do we naturally and normally just share life and do life with those around us? And so I uh, want to encourage you to not only take part in that special time, but also to invite people that you know um, who could enjoy it as well. And uh, we kind of come along together to provide that evening and, uh, and just to be together and to have fun doing that. Um, I know the kids absolutely love it. If you look on the back wall, uh, it's kind of has been our custom. It's really an opportunity for all of us to buy particular items and bring them in so that we can kind of share the load on that and would love for you, uh, uh, love for you to be a part of that. Another thing, you've probably noticed some young men and their fathers in the lobby the last few weeks with Trail Life. Today they are having a luncheon and they are um, uh, kind of doing a kind of a fundraiser for them. And uh, I've got some tickets. Uh, if you are interested in going, they gave me a couple of those and said, hey, listen, if you wouldn't mind making someone aware, uh, I've got two free tickets for their spaghetti lunch um, that is going to be happening immediately following this service in our gym. And so if you would like those, please see me immediately uh, following the service. And then I need to find Amy. Where are you? There you are. Hello, Amy. Um, this is Amy from One World Health, formerly PMI. So we have been working with them for a number of years now. And Amy was here for a concert with a conscience. How many of you went to concert with a conscience on Thursday night? Was that not awesome? Yeah, I loved it. Absolutely loved it. Um, it, was, it was a little bit weird because um, one of my sons, Sergio, where are you, Serge? Uh, where, is he not here? Is he skipping? There you are, Serge. Um, Serge brought a friend, and I was, I was talking to them, and they said, you did a great job singing Thursday. Okay, I wasn't singing Thursday. Um, but thanks, son. Appreciate the, the, the vote of confidence, but definitely enjoyed it. Even though I wasn't singing, I definitely enjoyed it. And uh, it was a fun time for us to come together and, uh, and to do that. And I'm looking forward to the next one. So hopefully, are we doing another one, Steve? Okay, cool. Uh, really looking forward to that as well. If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 18, where we're going to finish up that whole rest of the chapter, beginning in verse 10 and running it all the way through the end to verse 35. Um, when we were looking at how to divide this up, there really became a number of ways to prepare to kind of deal with this huge section, but the stories began to fold. They began to fall on themselves. So we've got last week's text, this warning for sin, and then three particular encounters, boom, 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 all closely related to each other, so we decided to keep them together. Now, next week, we're going to be starting chapter 19. And I just, for the sake of everybody being aware, I want to uh, show you this particular slide. There's a statement that Jesus makes in Matthew 19. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? The question comes on a number of different issues. Uh, Jesus is uh, having this conversation about marriage and about divorce and about singleness particularly. 
okay? Marriage, divorce, and singleness. And in that moment, especially with that text, he created them from the beginning, male and female. The more that we began to prepare for this series and the more that we began to constantly pray and say, God, what else is there that we need to address? Sometimes, like today, we're gonna be dealing with God's heart towards not just sin, but sinners and wanderers. So the text makes it very, very clear. Here, um, there is a, a, a sermon, and I could just preach from that one text, and we could talk about marriage and divorce and singleness, but the more that we begin to look at our culture and um, problems and difficulties and struggles and lies and confusion, particularly around six particular issues, we thought maybe we need to stop and deal with this. And so next week, we're going to be beginning the entire conversation with Matthew 19, that first uh, couple of paragraphs. We're dealing with the question about how has God made us and how does all of this fit together? And so next week, we'll be preaching on man, manhood, basically what does it mean to be a man? And there are lots of lies, there are lots of misunderstandings, temptations um, that the world has given us, and yet the Bible speaks to us, but it's this... And I'm just speaking truthfully, I don't think this is negative, it's just, it's an old book, do you know that? And it's kind of like steeped in its own history, you know that, right? And so some people just disregard it, oh yeah, it's an old book, it doesn't really have anything to say. Actually, I don't believe that. I believe that although it is an old book, it speaks very clearly to some issues. And so we're going to go back and we're going to look at it. What does the Bible teach about being a man from the beginning? From the very beginning, God created them male and female. What does it mean to be made male? And then we're going to be dealing with it the following week. What does it mean to be made female? Again, lots of ideas and lots of um, uh, lies and lots of temptations for us as we try to figure out who we are. Is that even a good way to, to think about your life or your identity, to figure it out? Is that, is that even the best way for us to respond to this? Does the Bible give us any parameters or advice or instruction or commands? We all love advice, right? Because then we're still the ones in control. But what if God's word is coming to us, not as advice, but as a word from the Lord? So we'll be dealing with manhood and womanhood. The, the week following that, we'll be actually dealing with the issue of sexuality, and that is definitely one that uh, our, our culture is absolutely infatuated with. But it's interesting as I try to do my best to pay attention to what's going on. Um, yet once again, we see historically that while you have this absolute obsession with sex, then you also have this kind of this growing resistance and indifference towards it. Which one of those is biblical or neither of them? So we're going to talk about sexuality. Week four, we're going to be dealing with, again, more of a direct uh, reference from this text, singleness. What does it mean to be single? Uh, raise your hand if you're single right now in the audience. Raise your hand. Yeah, I'm assuming second service a little bit more than first, right? A lot of college students. But the Bible actually says, I remember this hit me, and I never really thought much about it until after I was married, but the Bible says, for the sake of the kingdom and for the sake of what God is doing, we should really pray about this issue. I really, well, I just thought I was supposed to get married. And Jesus speaks about that issue in Matthew 19. Paul speaks about it in 1 Corinthians 7, um, and there are another, a number of other texts as well. So what does the Bible actually teach about that? Can you be whole and, um, and, and be single? And before you just quickly say yes or no, realize that the Bible offers a lot of instruction 
um, regards to that. So we're going to be dealing with singleness. And then the last two are going to go back to deal with this particular text. We're going to be dealing with marriage. What does the Bible teach about it? Um, and not just, it won't be like a marriage tips. So it's not, hey guys, um, we've got five things you can work on your marriage with. No, it's God's design on marriage. And how critical it is and how important it is that we have a biblical understanding of, and God created the male and female, and for this reason, a husband will leave his father and mother and cling to his, and that description of stuff helps us see this is important, this has value. So we'll be dealing with marriage. And then lastly, to just kind of, kind of rally around a great unifying topic, we'll be dealing with divorce and what the Bible teaches about that. And, and hear me, we're very aware very aware of the conflicted instructions that we hear societally, but even in the church. I mean, there are churches that, there's, I would argue there's probably as many um, church teachings about divorce as there are worldly teachings about divorce. So what does the Bible say about those issues? So um, we're going to be doing that for six weeks. I want you to be aware of that. Um, I want you to be praying about it. I um, want you to be uh, hopefully even interested in, in learning and coming with an open heart and an open mind about it. Um, another reason why I want you to be aware is obviously that bottom little asterisk. Since we are going to be speaking very frankly and very honestly, listen, um, what we share, we're not ashamed or embarrassed. We will share with you nothing that we consider to be inappropriate or over the line. But it is adult content. And so we love the fact that kids and kids are more than welcome to be a part of our fellowship. I just have no idea if you want to deal with the mommy, what was, right, that question that comes at lunchtime. If you're, more than, if you're more than glad to deal with it, we're more than glad to share it, okay? More than glad to share it. But just to kind of give you guys a heads up that over these six weeks, we're going to be dealing with these subjects. I had a lady come up first service um, who's been a part of this fellowship for a long time and, and recently has moved away. And she came with tears streaming down her face. And she just said, I'm so grateful to be a part of a church that doesn't run from these topics. And we're not the only church that does this, but all of a sudden, because I'm, I'm, I remember as we were kind of thinking through it, Steve, you know, I just remember thinking, yeah, this will be, we should do this. But to see someone say, I'm so glad because there's things I need to learn about this. There's things that we need to know about this. And we're gonna go to God's word and do that. So that's gonna be the next six weeks starting next Sunday, okay? So come prepared to hear what God is doing and today, we are going to be again in Matthew chapter 18, finishing up that section. Last week, we dealt with the unbelievable consequences, strong language of Jesus. And I'm not exaggerating, just in case you missed last week. Jesus saying, cut off your hand, cut off your foot, gouge out your eyes, because it would be better. And notice the text. It would be better for you to go into life it's almost like he's describing the next life. It would be better for you to go into eternity without a hand, right? Not, not go through the rest of this life without a hand and then get your hand back. It'd be better for you to go through the next life without a hand than to not make it into the next life. And that is a big deal because he's saying, I want you to understand just how serious and um, uh, the, the, kind of the consequences of sin, because you and I laugh at things that Jesus died for. You and I just decide to not talk about or to excuse so much that is going on in our own lives and in the lives of people around us. And Jesus says, you need to take sin more seriously. So it's probably pretty the normal for us to say, wow, yeah, sin's a really big deal. 
God is angry. He is really, really angry. God is put out, and all of a sudden, our picture of God becomes this unbridled, um, wrathful, uh, vengeful God who is just stomping around looking to squish everybody that is sinful, and I'm one of those people. And so it puts me at some level, probably either discouraged or maybe even distracted by God's fierce anger and judgment against sin. Is that how I should approach it? And so I love the fact that Jesus doesn't go, wow, I overstepped it there. I really probably shouldn't have said that whole cutting off hand thing. And so I'm just gonna kind of dial it back a little bit. I I apologize about that. I I really, I mean, thinking about it again, I knew there were kids here. I probably shouldn't have said that. That's not what's happening at all. I would even argue that as you grow in your understanding of who God is, that you don't create this balanced God. That God on the one hand is a God who is holy and righteous, that God is a God of wrath and a God God that judges. So he is. But then he kind of goes, wow, like if I'm just this, no one's gonna like me. And so I'm gonna kind of balance that out. So sometimes I'm angry and mad and different and I'm all of that. But then other times I'm just fun and I'm really kind of understanding and I'm really gracious and kind and sweet and cuddly. So that's who I am. No, that's that's actually how you and I operate personality-wise, right? Like think about it. You walk home after a busy day and your spouse or your family, whoever, um, they don't know what they're gonna get most times, right? You've had a good day, you come home in a good way. You've had a bad day, you come home and Katie bar the door, right? That's kind of how that works. But that's more of a schizophrenia that does not exist at all in the mind of God. God nowhere says, hey, listen, like today I just need to be very kind of wrath-oriented and um, judgmental and angry. But don't worry, that's only one out of seven days. Most of the other days I'm really kind of sweet and cute and cuddly. That is so messed up. God doesn't balance this out. God doesn't say, okay, and, and you know, sure, maybe it's not one and six. Uh, maybe it's more like maybe five and two. No, it's not how it works. God is an integrated, I mean, perfectly integrated being so that his righteousness and judgment and wrath fit right alongside. This is, I think, why we marvel at him. Fits right alongside his grace and mercy, his kindness, his forgiveness, If you don't understand that, I'm gonna call you back over and over and over again to the cross. It is at the cross of Jesus Christ that you and I recognize and are even drawn into God's holiness and his righteousness and his justice and his wrath. And simultaneously, his mercy and his forgiveness and his grace, is it not? Do you not look at the cross and go, wow, God takes sin seriously. And do not look at the cross and say, wow, God is so loving simultaneously. So please, don't have this schizophrenic God where Jesus on the one hand says, sin is terrible, and on the next minute he says, but God loves you. No. It's, those are integrated ideas that only fit perfectly in the creator of the universe. So Matthew, in kind of the beginning of this, as we look at the heart of God, notice, and and this is one thing we should not forget. We'll see why here in a moment. Do not forget the heart of God. Do not forget kind of um, his, the the direction in which he goes. Um, When I I say his bent, again, don't think balance, think integration, okay? What attributes of God 
it's not that they're emphasized over one another, but how does God in his perfectly uniform character approach us? Jesus says this. See that you do not despise, verse 10. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. Don't just think children. As Drew pointed out a couple of weeks ago, it's, it's not just children. It's those that are less, those that are marginalized, those that are on the outside, those that you and I really don't consider matter much. Sure, children, but you can just get a whole bunch of segments of society to fit alongside of them. Do not despise these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountainside and go? Notice the directional nature of God. That is why it is very easy for us to say, in light of the fact that God went, Adam and Eve sin, they don't go looking for God, no, they hide. They cover themselves up. They're broken. God goes to them. Adam, where are you? God speaking to Adam. Where are you? God pursues them, not vice versa. And it's so good for us to see that. Jesus points out this shepherd, does he not leave the 99 and go and search that one that went astray? Implied answer in the Greek is yes, he does. And if he finds it, truly, I say to you, he rejoices. It is so important that you understand that attribute of God, that he rejoices. So is God serious about sin? Yes. Is God going to judge sin? Yes. Should you and I accept, ignore, or somehow uh, celebrate sin? No. Or we find ourselves at odds with the creator of the universe. But when we go to him. When we humble ourselves, what is going to be the attitude? Have you ever been in a situation where you had to go back and be very, very honest about something that you did and it was really, really wrong and it was really, really bad and you're really, really embarrassed? You know what the number one fear that you had was? The number one fear was they will not understand, they will not love me, they will not care for me, they will reject me. And that is how people think about God. And you know what? It's just not true. Now, if you want to stay in your sin or stay in your rebellion, then that's one thing. But don't attribute to God this kind of miserly, clenched fist forgiveness. Okay, you can forgive me. I'll eventually let you open up my hand, but I'm going to give you this reluctantly. We don't have a God that gives forgiveness that gives peace and reconciliation with a clenched fist. I would argue that by the time that you get there, you'll actually find that his hand and his arms are open wide. This is the kind of God that we serve. I'm so grateful for a series that we preached a couple of years ago called Yahweh. And in that series, one of the attributes that we took was Yahweh the merciful. And I began to look through the Old Testament, and I knew that God was merciful, but I guess I had a little bit in my own mind, even though it made made no sense to me, that God was this balancing act God. A little bit of anger, a little bit of love, a little bit of judgment, a little bit of grace. And the more that I began to look at the mercy, the, the merciful nature of God and how the Bible described God as so merciful, I began to realize that the majority of times that was discussed was in judgment texts. In judgment texts. 
And so really, mercy wasn't like as opposed to justice. Mercy was like God's first move towards us. That sure, judgment will come should you and I choose to stay hard-hearted and rebellious against him. But the phrase that I used and that I've used to this day is that God's first move towards us, God's first step towards us is one of mercy. Because that's who he is. I mean, seriously, he's not trying to sell himself. He's not in heaven going, hey, I need some help with my marketing here. I just find that people don't like that anger side of me, and so I'm trying to polish it up a little bit. It's, it's not Microsoft trying to figure out how do we repackage ourselves. It's God in terms of who he is and his natural bent, not to win you over, but it will win you over, is mercy. His first move towards us is one of mercy. God who is long-suffering, God who puts up with our sin and rebellion time and time and time and time and time and time again. Do you know that's who he is? Do you know that's his nature? See, because if you see God as reluctant to give you forgiveness or reluctant to give you peace, no wonder you keep your sin buried down. No wonder you don't confess your sin to, to God or to anyone. Because why? Because you don't trust him like you don't trust the people that are sitting right beside you. But he can be trusted, for he is good. And this is who he is. He looks for the one, he finds the one, and when he brings that one back, he rejoices over it more. Listen up for those of you that don't think you have a problem. He rejoices more in the one who's come back than on the 99 that never went astray. Just think about that for a moment. That one catches me all the time because if you were to ask me, and, and by the way, it's just, just it's describing the rejoicing. It doesn't mean that God doesn't love the 99. And I would even argue this. These verses about lost sheep, lost coins, and a lost boy, and actually there are two lost boys, two lost sons there. It's not God's, it's not God's love for lost people who are sinners and apart from him on their way to hell. If you go back and look at it, it's within the nation of Israel and it's God pursuing his children. It's actually probably more akin to you and I wandering and straying and God pursues us. I'm not, this text isn't for your lost neighbor or your lost coworker that's going to hell. This text is for us. This text is for you and me. And God loves us and pursues us, continues to pursue us. God didn't pursue me, find me, and then just kind of tuck me away. There are times I'm in the 99, and there are times I'm wandering like a fool. God loves me. And when I come back, amazingly enough, and oh, I just, it's so embarrassing, I gotta walk back in and see the 99, and they know where I've been, like this is just awkward. And you know what makes it worth it? The look on God's face and the joy that he has, is that the way you look at your brokenness and your sin? Do you know the joy that it does to your Father who is in heaven? I think if we had that true picture, then the 99 of us sitting here, we're not having our arms full. Oh, look who finally came back. Loser. You, you, you don't say that when the shepherd is carrying him and he is so excited. You don't say that, do you? Notice how this text is going to be lining up more and more that your and I attitude should be more in line with shepherd, more in line with the king that we're gonna see here in a moment, more in line with him. 
because of his great love. Verse 14, so it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that even one of these little ones should perish. Oh, so does God, is God gonna judge sin? Yes. He's not gonna do it reluctantly? No, God is going to do it. He's not gonna feel bad about doing it. It's not fine, I don't wanna do this, but I'm gonna have to. No, 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 that's not God. But especially if you can hear my voice, and not, but you're the ones I'm talking to right now, so you know what I'm saying, right? Don't tell me you haven't heard. So many people hear and hear and hear of God's favor, but just love their sin more that are right now in this room. You got an alternative plan to deal with your sin problem. I just want you to know God loves you. Sent his son to die for you. His heart, his first move towards you is mercy and rejoicing over your repentance. Never, ever, ever forget that. Verse 15, Jesus continues on, and he basically, not only should we not forget the heart, of, uh, the heart of God, but we should not forget like his instruction to us. So what's going on back with the 99, Jesus? Well, I mean, you're going on and on about your life, so while the shepherd's gone, finding that one that's lost. By the way, should there be problems with the 99, I want you to act like God does. Verse 15. If your brother sins against you or sister, I want to be a um, uh, kind of I want to kind of offend everybody in the room this morning with the text. If your brother or sister sins against you, notice the next word. What does it say? Go. It's not some deep theological Greek word for go. It literally means go. Okay, it's kind of the simple go word. So God goes, and so do we. This, this, this verse, by the way, is not about, uh, I've, I've seen this whole, this whole section here, it's about sin and confrontation. I've seen this whole text used so poorly by Christian people, including myself. I've, I've seen it used at the very end, you'll see in verse 20, where two or three are gathered in my name, there will I be with you. One of the worst, most misinterpreted verses of Bible, usually used to describe a small group Bible study that just didn't make it because only three people showed up. And so you got a leader that's trying to make you feel better about yourself by lying to you about the Bible, which is never a good plan. I've often thought when I've heard people say that, well, two or three are gathered, there is Jesus. Okay. Where was he when there was just me? Well, he was there. Okay. And so and if like a fourth person were to walk in, does he leave? But Jesus, ah, it's a little crowded. I got to go. <laughs> no. Okay. So then what's your point again? If your point is he was here with one and he's here with four and with 54, what are you trying to say? Well, I'm just trying to say Jesus is with you. Then why didn't you say that? And that's not what this verse is talking about. This verse is not talking at all about small group Bible study. This, group, this, 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 this phrase that he uses at the end is describing conflict and confrontation and church discipline. Not only that, but I've seen this text used by people who want to argue for kind of the privatization of their sin and the confidentiality of their sin. That somehow, because they weren't approached in the right way, you know, you're supposed to come to me privately. Sure, listen, there may have been ways in which it was broken on that side. Don't stay in your sin and somehow try to hold this I'm right, more righteous than, than you scenario with this text. I've seen, I've seen preachers use it where it's not even an issue of sin. You should have come to me privately. Dude, I was just telling you, you parked in the wrong section. 
Yeah, well, that was supposed to be private, Matthew 18. I'm I'm not kidding. I've heard pastors use it in the worst way. I've seen people use it in the worst way. Why? Because we don't know what to do with sin. We want to try to somehow make it private, make it confidential, make it not our fault. We want to do everything we can to just shut everybody up on this issue. And it's working. We are silent when it comes to sin. But Jesus says, go. Ready? Look at this. Go and tell him or her his fault between you and him alone. Okay? So that's, that's just a good biblical principle. Don't make it the only principle, right? But it's a good principle. Then notice, and if they listen to you, then you've gained your brother back. That's what's actually expected. This is what happens, I would argue, like 80 to 90% of the time. The majority of times where we deal with this as a church or I deal with this in my family is I go and, or someone comes to me and we repent and we rejoice and we move on. Verse 16, but if he does not listen, take one or two, see where the one or two are coming from? Take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now, do you see where it's coming from? The book of Deuteronomy. That if someone is going to make an accusation, you don't listen to one, you listen to two or three. That's the, where two or three are gathered in my name comes from. It's a Deuteronomic code. That's why Paul says, do not listen to an accusation against an elder if just one person has it. That's just called gossip. But on the establishment, on the, do you want to go to court? Do you want to kind of give a formal testimony about this? Well, no, 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 I just want to complain. No, 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 I'm just telling you what I heard. Yeah, we don't deal with that in the church. But if it's a real issue of sin, and that person won't do anything about it when you went to them privately, then you bring two or three along with you to find out what's going on here. Is this just, a, is this just a, like a, a personality problem that Jim has with so-and-so or that so-and-so has with Jim? Or is this a real issue? Like, I don't trust me to deal with these issues. But you know who I do trust? The Holy Spirit in two or three of us. I've told a lot of people this. Hey, listen, I know the elders of this church. I know the staff of this church. If they tell me I need to go, my own children know, then we gotta support the elders and the staff. I do not believe we could get such critical things wrong because of the guidance and the direction of the Holy Spirit. That's how strongly I believe that. If he doesn't listen, take two or three others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses, because there are those who do, if he refuses to listen to them, then tell it to the church. And one of the things that's made it just a little more complicated nowadays is that, like, not everybody, I mean, the only time the church really kind of gathers together like this is on Sunday morning, and the truth is not everybody here is part of Sunnybrook. So it really has made a lot of these problems rather complicated, rather difficult. We've turned a lot of our assemblies into just kind of gatherings where everybody can come, which I'm all for. But it makes it complicated. How, how do we deal with sin? We bring somebody up here, and you're like, man, that's just awkward. I don't know if I want to air the ugly laundry in front of everybody, especially people who don't even believe and who don't know and who kind of are busybody. I mean, it gets complicated to deal with this very real and important subject, which, by the way, this church deals with. We're not afraid to deal with the truth about sin and to call people back to repentance. Tell it to the church, he says. And if he refuses, and this has happened, if he refuses to even listen to the church, then let him to be as you as a Gentile or a tax collector. Please don't just try to figure out a way to get out of this. Yeah, Jesus loved Gentiles and tax collectors, so hey, guess what? We're back in. 
No, Jesus is using this as a, uh, it's kind of an expression. There, there really is within the Christian community, there's an inside and an outside. There's an ugly part of that. You're not one of us. You can't be one of us. You're not right. You're not like us. That's exclusive and that's not biblical. No, we have a go mentality. Come be a part of us. Come be a part of us. Come be a part of us. But it's not like we have zero restrictions or zero um, uh, responsibility or submission to who God is and to one another. No, no, no. Everyone is invited to be a part of us. But when you're a part of us, we fall under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And should you choose to laugh at, mock, not treat sincerely the instructions of God, submit to God's leaders, Jesus is making it very clear, then treat him as you would a Gentile or tax collector, somebody who was on the outside, which by the way, then we would continue to pray for them and want them to come back in. And I've been in situations like this, two that still hit incredibly close to home. Two brothers, one spiritual, one spiritual and physical, in which I had to say at a moment in time, listen, I love you, but I can't go on. We can't go to the movies and pretend that everything is fine when you look me in the eye and say, I don't care what God wants. I don't care what, it, what effects this is gonna have on anybody. I'm going to do what makes me happy. I just can't go on. There's, there's too much at stake. Your soul is at stake. My boys are watching me. The church is looking at how we're going to respond to this. And if we embrace your sin, do you realize that we stand opposed to who God is? So do not misunderstand my silence or even my frustration. I love you, but I cannot support your deliberate, unrepentant attitude towards your sin. I promise you, it's not easy. Like, it tears at the very core of who I am. And about the only thing that gives me the strength, if you've never had to do that, like, and I mean a brother and my other brother, I mean close to me, if you've never had to do that, I'm telling you, the most difficult thing I've ever had to do, the only thing that gave me the strength to do it was the promised presence of Jesus. Look at how he continues. For truly I say to you, verse 18, for truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth, that's kind of the idea of laws or rules, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Translation, having been bound in heaven. So it's not Peter or James or John or Jim and Scott and Ryan and Paul or Steve. It's not, it's not, it's not that. We can't make up anything that we want, but in accordance with the word of God and in accordance with the continued guidance of the spirit of God within the people of God, we talk about that all the time. Word of God, people of God, spirit of God. I trust, I trust that we will do what is right. Not to protect God from bad people, but to genuinely, for everyone's sake, be honest about the plan of, uh, of, of sin and of struggle and of repentance and of restoration. So whatever you bind has been bound, whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two, or, uh, if two of you agree on earth about anything that you ask, this isn't prayer time. Anybody have a prayer request? No. This is judgment time. When we're asking, what are we asking? God, be in line with this. God, are we, I mean, you have to do it with prayer. God, are we right on this? 
Are we right about this sin? Are we right about this rebellion? Are we right about this casting out? Is there another way that we could do this? God, I need your help in this. Whatever you ask, it will be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. Verse 20, here it is. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. And nothing, nothing short of the presence of Jesus has given me the strength to have brutally pain conversations with brothers and sisters in Christ. And this isn't a pretend text that we pretend to pay attention to. This is a very real text in the life and ministry of Sunnybrook Christian Church. And we don't do it because we think we're better than. We don't do it because we don't have struggles or problems of our own. We don't do it because we're afraid. We we do it because God teaches it. We, We do it because sin actually has an incredibly dangerous result and an incredibly hopeful, I believe this, an incredibly hopeful return when repentance is there. Remember the heart of God? And by far and away the majority of times when we have a church, as a church, have had to deal with this, people with tears streaming down their face, I'm just so grateful to be a part of a church that loves me and holds me accountable offering forgiveness and hope and peace. Problem is that you and I live in very thin relationships where you and I are not spending the intentional time to to even have a relationship that could go through something like that. The, 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 The truth is that many of us in this room are actually so loosely connected it really doesn't matter. I don't even know. I mean, th- think about it. Like, how many people in this room do you think we really even know so that we can deal with issues about sin? The more that you kind of stay in your little isolated bubble, now, it's sin's still doing its work. But now you have no help. Now you have no assistance. I can't tell you the number of times that we see families literally rotting from the inside because one or both parents are deciding to kind of stay at arm's length to the church. And, and, and literally, maybe one of them is, is, is secretly, desperately wanting to somehow connect to get that help. But no, 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 we're just going to kind of stay at arm's length. And, and then, by the way, we'll usually find out on Facebook a year or two out, a year or two later, that, yeah, that, either that marriage didn't work or that sin finally gave birth to death. And all of a sudden, you have this really broken situation. My, my challenge to us as a, as a fellowship is not just to do this. You need to rebuke your, we, we talk about that all the time. Sure, I mean, I, it's a no-brainer, right? You need to confront, you need to be there and love and care for them. You need, you need to do that. And if, if they come to you, then you need, to, you need to respond in a humble, contrite heart. You need to be repentant. It's not just you always somebody confronting somebody else. It's you being confronted by somebody else. I wish it was always just me confronting everybody. It's not. It's me being confronted by brothers and sisters who love me. Enough to speak hard truth to me. But now's the time to develop some relational thickness in your relationships. Now is the time to say, I'm going to get involved on that gather piece where all of a sudden I'm becoming transparent. I'm becoming honest. I'm becoming real. I'm becoming vulnerable. Sadly enough, too often when we're dealing with these kinds of church discipline situations, I walk into the person's home and the conversations that happen in that are not like the conversations we had in the lobby. In the lobby and in the pew, it's, hey, how you doing? They're the sweetest people in the world. Yeah, come on over. Let's have lasagna. 
And then you cut into their home and all of a sudden you find out this isn't the way they treat one another. This, isn't the, this, this, was all a, this is all a game. And hear me, I get it. I get it that you don't walk in here and just bleh. But now is the time to develop some relational thickness in you so that you can respond faithfully to what God is doing in your life and in your heart. Do not forget Jesus' instruction and then don't forget that God is the standard. This is so critical. This is one of my favorite parables. It is both challenging, comforting, and just terrifying. So after this judgment speech, and after this, you need to go to them, and if not, send them away, Peter comes up and says to him, Lord, how often will, I, will, my, will my brother sin against me and I have to forgive him? As many as seven times, and he thinks he's like really, that's awesome. How about seven? Jesus says to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Like seriously, we're on 23. Are you either gonna quit counting or go, this is gonna go on for a really long time, right? Therefore, Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Let me translate that into modern terms. A gajillion, trillion, billion, gazillion, chillion dollars. Literally, like, you, you can't pay this back. You have to know that. This was not a payable back type of issue. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had in payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring, we're good at this, have mercy or patience with me and I will pay you everything, which he couldn't. Like that's just, that's just silly. I'll pay you back. You couldn't pay him back. Out of pity on him, the master of that servant released him, forgave him the debt, but when that same servant, the one who'd just been forgiven, the gajillion, trillion, bazillion dollars, that same servant went out, he found some, one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, a couple of days pay. Seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. And so the fellow servant fell down and he pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you, which he could. He refused. Put him in prison until he should pay back the debt I love this. And when the fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to the master all that had taken place. And when the master summoned him, he said to him, you wicked, wicked servant, I forgave you. Just let us sit there for a second. I forgave you. You're groveling in front of me and I looked at what you owed me and you could never pay me back and I said, I love you, we're good. And then you go and do this? I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant, notice this word, as, like, in a similar way. Should you not have had mercy as I had had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay the debt. Ah, he's never getting out. No matter how many tattoos he has on his body, he's never getting out. Verse 35, so also my heavenly father will do, ev to, will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother or sister 
from the heart. Wow. Like, that's serious, isn't it? Like, that's how serious God is about sin. And, and I love that parable because on the one hand, I'm the guy going, God, I cannot repay you. I cannot repay you. I cannot repay you. And sometimes I'm the guy that just cannot believe. You know what they did to me? You won't believe what they did to me. And I, before I, you know, take him to court and before I have him thrown in jail and then you go and complain to God and then it goes wrong for me, I need to stop and go, wait a second, let's just compare how this has been going. I mean, here's a great reminder, kind of a great rule of thumb. Have you ever had to forgive anyone as much as God has had to forgive you? It's not even close. It's not even close. I don't know if this guy just never came to terms with it. I don't know if this guy is just kidding himself. I don't know, I don't know what's wrong with this guy. It's a parable, right? I don't want to, Jesus would even say, don't read too much into it. But you know what he wants me to read into it? That last part. If you do not forgive from the heart, then don't expect God to forgive you. That's how, listen to this, that's how serious God is about sin. And we need to be that serious. How serious? We need to be so serious about sin that we gladly, 77 times, forgive our brothers and sisters when they sin against us. See, I know a lot of people that want me to preach against sin. Go get them. Let them have it. Right? They love that aspect of it. Let them have it. Now, by the way, they're usually like, let them have it, not me. I'll give you a list of five things that I don't think I have any problem with and I want you to just let them have it. That's not what this text is doing at all. Other people really kind of love to, yeah, let them have it. Let me have it. And literally, it's, um, it's, it's kind of going back to that theological spanking. I feel good about feeling bad. I feel really, really bad today, preacher. Thanks, I really needed that. You can do anything about it? No, probably not. No, just going on about my day, but just I, I feel better about feeling bad. Isn't that what God wants me to do, is feel bad? No. God wants you to repent. God wants you to know of his love for you and the new life that he has for you in Jesus. And God is that standard of forgiveness. And see, I'll never measure up to that standard. I'm just gonna live... I'm gonna live in the, in, the, in, the, in the kind of the overflowing weight of his grace and the overflowing love that he, that he has shown me. I mean, it's just this forgiveness thing. So I'm not gonna count because God's not counting it against me. God's counting it against Christ. And in light of that event, I got nothing but just, hey, we're good. I'm serious. Listen, I'm not saying that what you did was wrong or was okay. What you did was really, really wrong. But in light of what God has done for me, I'm more than glad to be someone who has received grace and who extends it to others. I'm going to be the first one to, to be that first move where mercy is given. I would take seriously, brothers and sisters, this admonition that if you do not forgive, you will not be forgiven. God is the standard and we are his standard bearers. Let me close by just reading you these three scriptures that just come to mind all the time when I deal with this, this issue of God's forgiveness and his relentless, relentless pursuit of us. Matthew five forty eight, You therefore must be perfect as or like your heavenly father is perfect. 
That's not talking about sinlessness. It's not talking about just never making a mistake. It's talking about God's love for his enemies, where he sends the rain on both the just and the unjust. That's what our God is. You know that, right? Our God just doesn't send blessings on the people that he likes and then the people that he hates. He's always sticking it to them. That's how you and I would be God. It's not how he's God. You need to be perfect, literally the word means mature and whole, as God is whole, by recognizing how loving and gracious and generous and kind he is. And quit, literally, in the midst of recognizing sin, quit keeping score. I had a grad or a professor who used to always say to me, who gave you the referee's whistle? Now by the way, it doesn't mean we don't have honest conversations about sin, but we remember who we are in the process. Ephesians 4.31 says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. Along with all malice, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as or like God in Christ forgave you. And he continues on, Ephesians chapter five, verses one and two. Therefore be imitators of God as or like beloved children. And walk in love, like or as, Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Do you see his heart? Do you know his love? That's why when people say to me, I wish you'd preach more on sin, and I know they're not meaning theirs. I always say, listen, you're right, maybe I should. But you do know, right? You do know that there's no way I could ever talk about sin even as strongly as Jesus did. Maybe, I don't know, maybe I'm gonna talk stronger than Jesus did. There'd be no point in time where I could talk strongly or passionately, hellfire and brimstone preaching about sin, and God is not greater still. And his mercy is not eternally greater still. I love to say to people, like, especially like broken and repentant people, who are just overwhelmed by their sin, like if right now, if you're just hard-hearted, we'll, we'll, we'll kind of save you for another message. I want to speak to the broken. Can I talk to the broken? When God, sa- <laughs> Good. when God saved you, when God saved you, did he know you'd be a mess? Did he know would do the sin that you're thinking in your mind? Did he know that you would be that way? Did he know you'd fall this many times? Did he know you'd be drowning and he'd have to pull you up? Did he know that? What's the answer? Yeah. And he saved you anyway. Is God not good? And so we talk about that goodness and we live in that goodness and we extend that goodness to one another, amen? Go in the grace of God. Now I would love to continue this faith conversation. Literally, I could stay here all day and talk to you about this. So please, if you're wrestling with your relationship with God and forgiveness, if you're wrestling in a human relationship and the issue of forgiveness, please walk this way and not that way, and we will continue this faith conversation. We love you guys. Extend God's grace to others. See you Wednesday night.